Wargaming Recon is proudly sponsored by the Maine Historical Wargamers Association. They put on the Huzzah Convention. Huzzah is happening at the Doubletree in Portland, Maine from May 19th to the 21st, 2023. Come play war games featuring epic historical battles, have fun at a sci-fi and fantasy game, or dig into some board games at Huzzah. Visit mhwa.info for more information. Welcome to War Gaming Recon. I am your host, Jonathan J. Reinhardt. Today we have a brand new episode of War Gaming Recon coming at you talking about Katana Ra and AI art. So whether you're a new listener or a longtime fan, you know that we like to dive right in. And today we're not just going to be talking about this here on our own. You're not just going to have me. No, we got this very special guest for you. We are joined by the CEO of WRKS Games, Works Games, Cause he is the publisher of Jordanheim, and now they have a brand new game out, or will be coming out, called Katana Ra. So, Cause, how are you today? I'm oh, very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Thank you for having me. It's uh, been a while since our last uh, chit chat. Yeah, I, too long in my opinion. Uh, but you are so busy that I, I like to give you plenty of time to have something new happening before I say, hey, do you want to come back on? Yes, yes, we do have a, a surprisingly large amount of stuff going down for such a small team. So for those who didn't hear uh, the episode before when you were on, do you want to just kind of briefly go over what your origin story is and kind of how you became a game developer? Yep. Uh, so it, it's uh, it started out, well, I actually started out my career in uh, by, by accident, um, getting into, because I, I've been a gamer for a long time, but when I left university, the very first thing I did was start a a uh, game development company. Uh, don't do that. That's, that was a, that was a crazy thing to do. But uh, but I did do that. By some fluke, we managed to get a tabletop game company out the door quite well. Uh, we did quite well uh, for a few years, and then I sold the company when I was in my early twenties, and then went on to uh, to uh, have a, a lengthy career in technology before um, going back into games because I kind of wanted to do it right. Uh, so you can think of Works Games as as kind of the game company I would have had in uh, you know 25 years ago if I had known what I was doing, uh, and now a more premeditated attempt at trying to to do the right version of that in the right way. So that's kind of where we got started, and and Works Games got cracking in 2017, and we only develop games in our own IPs, in our own universes, as we call them, um, and we have both tabletop and video game production in-house inside of these uh, content universes um, that we bring to market ourselves. So we develop and publish ourselves. Don't you wish that like you could go back and tell your younger self some of the lessons you've learned in, in life and be like, don't worry about this. It's not a big deal. It'll be okay. Or like, really, you should pay attention to this. Like this is, you need to sink a little more time into that. Oh yeah, I mean, we was we we managed to pull off some pretty remarkable things back in the day, considering the fact that it was like a first time for many things. It was a my first job. It was my first time working in the world. It was my first time leading a team. Uh, we were doing a very difficult thing because we kind of we walked into the tabletop game industry when when it was starting to go digital, um, mm -hmm. and everybody was kind of doing the PDFs. But they were they were doing PDFs as basically just all the you know the images, the the, the layout stripped out, selling for a few pennies, um, which I thought was crazy because the whole reason that you went out to and bought like a great tabletop product is the artwork, the layout, the immersion that's with that. So we were spending the same amount of money, time, effort in uh, PDF-based books that went into the print productions and selling them at the print production price. And nobody was doing that at the time. 
Everybody thought we were absolutely crazy. Uh, but actually, we correctly assessed the market demand for this and we started to make money. You know, when we sold the company, it was making like 300 grand a year. Wow. And when you're, when you're 20 something, 300 grand is a lot of money. Yes, it is. Uh, and and uh, so, and looking back at it, it's amazing what a remarkable achievement that was. Because that was at a time when the, we were introduced this concept in the market of premium quality, premium priced digital products at a time when Wizards of the Coast were afraid to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and a lot of the tabletop industry you see today started then, you know, um, the drive through RPG started back then. Wizards came to, uh, to the digital world, selling their products at the same price back then. Uh, and uh, well, what oh, Monty Cook Games started back then. Though, though the, all of these guys were like making their presence in, in digital premium at that time. So these were these were good like pioneering times. Sadly, of course, this was not fun. And pioneering a completely new thing while at the same time having so many firsts that we you know needed to learn as a, as a as a group. And everybody else in my group was equally like that. It was their first first at a lot of things. Uh, and uh, so it wasn't an enjoyable experience. It was extremely taxing, extremely stressful. And to be honest, I'm fairly sure success at the time had a great deal to do with fluking. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was, we built some amazing. Uh, and there, I still, I'm tickled to find them around today. Uh, and interestingly, a couple of the people who write for us today, I met back in the day. In point of fact, Jay Libby, or Jay Parker, as he's now, uh, who is the main game designer for Katana Ra, is somebody I met 25 years ago. We stayed friends all of this time. That guy's an absolutely amazing game designer. He's sustained himself as an indie game designer for 25 years in the tabletop arena. Um, and when I wanted to do this, we actually went through a recruiting process. He applied for the job and won the job. Oh, yeah. That. yeah. Jay's a good friend of mine. Yes. Wonderful guy. He's, I he's love, done an absolute killer job with it. it just, I love seeing him do well. And I, I mean, now's a good time to kind of uh, jump into Katana Ra. But um, your previous uh, set universe was set in kind of like a Viking-esque realm, Jordanheim. Yeah. Uh, and now you're taking a departure with Katana Ra. So what is Katana Ra? Yes. So we have, so basically we've got three main universes and we've had these three universes idea from the beginning. Um, the first uh, few years of, of works were spent in Jordanheim, um, heavily investing into the idea of building out this, this Viking inspired universe, which is one video game and, and, the, and the core rule book. Katana Ra is way different. Uh, you can think of it as, um, it's, I mean, it's a Japanese feudal Japan history, culture, and lore in with cyberpunk. Um, you can think of it as Blade Runner with samurais, which is <laughs> approximately correct. There are a few things that are interesting about Katana Ra. So first of all, I hate cyberpunk. Uh, and one, one of these, uh, the, the, one of the reasons I hate cyberpunk is that everybody does cyberpunk in exactly uh, if you go and take any, any cyberpunk universe, RPG books, right, sci-fi games, it's all the same. It's exactly the same. Uh, and I wanted to build a cyberpunk concept that was different. Um, and you'll find this when you play Katana Rai. It's very, very different. Uh, one of the major differentiators is the fact that it has magic or rituals because Japanese lore and Japanese mythology is very, very interesting. It's mm -hmm. extremely dark. It's a lot of possession, demons, death, um, and very complex personalities and characters and rituals. And uh, we fuse that into the cyberpunk world. So you can have, for example, a, um, a, a Japanese inspiration like a 
an actual katana, a sword. But in this universe, that sword will then be augmented by modern or futuristic materials to be able to be viable in a world where you also have lasers and bullets and grenades. Um, but then you will also find these swords infused with demonic presence that then do unusual things when you have them uh, right in your possession. So there's layers and layers and layers of complexity. So you can think of Jordanheim as the universe we created for the people entering the world of role-playing for the first time, the casual gamer who wants to have a great, in-depth, recognizable fantasy experience. Whereas Katana Rise for the hardcore gamer, the ones who want to get into the layers, who want to get into the details and really build very complex characters and stories into their role-playing uh, role worlds. As always, Every game we build has got an easy introduction mode, like a lightweight mode for those who want to get started just by pick up and play. This is no exception. Katana Ra has that also. Um, but it has also got enormous amounts of complexity and depth in the rule set if you want to start digging into creating your custom rules and your custom settings based on it. So basically you're saying there's a Jonathan introductory level and then there's a, a, a Jay Parker advanced level for those who yes. are... okay. Yes, everything everything that we do has got an uh, like because we we noticed when we built our first video game that we were not only attracting new gamers to our world, we were attracting a generation of people who had never played games before. Wow! So regardless of whether we're doing a tabletop game or a video game, there is always a pathway for people who are touching gaming for the first time. So the the pick up and play requirement exists as a design philosophy in everything. Uh, but then we want the people who are experienced gamers to be able to dig into those layers and find the complexity that they're looking for. So we have th these two facets exist in everything that we do. Uh, it's also an incredibly diverse world because um, we try to stay, every single world that we do is partially inspired by a historical or, or cultural significance on planet Earth, mm -hmm. which we try to stay relatively authentic to. So in Jordanheim, for example, because we opted for Vikings, and we opted for that era. It's an era where there wasn't a lot of diversity in the in in the in the actual history on Earth. Mo, mo, the characters are mostly Caucasian. Mm -hmm. uh, if there were brown people or black people, they were largely slaves in the in the Viking era. We didn't really want to portray hero characters that way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the hero characters in Jordanheim are are Caucasian of origin, but we've added diversity by by redefining the concept of a hero in different ways. So for example, there is a completely a mad um, and also a neurodiverse or a, uh, a, a, a mentally right, stability challenged uh, archetypes in Jordanheim who get to be heroes in the mm -hmm. world. So we kind of added diversity there. But with Katana Ra, with the Japanese futuristic setting, not on, on Earth, but uh, inspired by the, the Japanese history, we could go completely nuts. So the the, the diversity level in, in Katana Ra is ridiculously. Well, I would imagine not only uh, are you able to have a interesting spectrum with Katana Ra, but that you're also kind of able to uh, include a variety of uh, gender identities and orientations, and it it just yeah. all makes sense. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and so it was also about getting, it's this time in the companies when we're kind of comfortable being uh, what we are as a, as a tabletop game developer as well, mm -hmm. or as a game developer in general, because we, we have the production capacity now for very high quality products. We have the routes to market to get them to stores. So we've been working with just Jordanheim as a tabletop game for the last couple of years, getting that really well put together. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's because we self-publish. We're not. It's not sufficient to create a good product. We have to then go through the machinery of 
of building, printing, shipping, warehousing, getting it into stores so you can get it and everybody else can get it. And this has to go out everywhere in the world. All of that took a little while. So we got into a good place with that last year. So we've kicked off production sensationally. So Katana Ra being our third universe, Native Land is our fourth one, which is going to make an entrance next year. But we now have the ability to, to ship well, therefore we've upped our production. So despite the fact that Katana Ra is kind of the focus of this year, we haven't taken focus off Jordanheim. In point of fact, two Jordanheim products are coming out this year, as well as two Katana Ra products. We have a total of four tabletop products shipped to market this year, one every quarter, um, so, with the first one already out. So what is like the, you, ha you have the idea of all these universes and you want to create games for them, both tabletop and console video game uh, sort of thing. But what does the process look like? Just like a, a broad overview, I guess, from that moment where you have that inspiration or that idea, like, oh, I want to make something and it becomes Katana Ra. Uh, but what does it start with from that kernel? And then what does it look like going from that kernel all the way to a completed product. Yeah, so we do have actually got a pretty strict process for this now. Uh, so at the, at the universe level, uh, these three universes were actually in play already on day one in the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and they largely started by asking a few things. One was what, what I'm a huge mythology buff, by the way. I've been there since I was very young. I'm very widely read about cultures and mythologies in the world. Um, and there's a lot of mythologies and histories that never get taught broadly in in societies in the world. Sadly, uh, that is true. true regardless of where you are in the world, really. That's not, not a West society problem. It's pretty much regardless. Uh, and there are some, some amazing uh, cultural and historical and mythological elements that turn into amazing stories. So the first question I ask myself is what, what three stories do you know do we want to tell? What are the, what are the peoples we want to be focusing? So Viking, uh, I've always been a big Viking buff, spent a lot of time in Scandinavia, therefore that came sort of naturally. Mm -hmm. um, and the Japanese, a historical element and mythology there was an obvious fusion with cyberpunk at least to me it was obvious uh, so that's where that kernel came from and native land is based heavily around the uh, the mythologies histories of native american culture uh, but we look we're building the universe as an alternate history looking at it from the perspective of the native americans winning from colonization upward oh um, and again that's a that's a culture that is like incredibly rich and deep um, so th that's how those those three concepts came into play. And then once they came into play, the way we design a universe is that we start out by drawing out a historical very top line. We start from like creation and we block in the the historical timeline leading into whatever we consider is the now state of the universe. Uh, so the games we built are in the now state of the universe, but we go back a ways and define like the historical elements so we get like a clear thread of how did now happen. Uh, so, for example, in Katana Ra, it's a heavily faction and region, territorial driven, very volatile um, economic and actual warfare style culture. That's what I wanted for the now state. So the first thing that Jay did, well, actually, I did it to start with. I went back and drew a timeline mm -hmm. from the creation to today as to how we got to the point. What are the key elements of history? What are the key political movements that yielded this? And then I added the factions, the faction leaders, their motivations, the cultural uh, significances in the different territories. What do the territories visually look like? This is typically a giant Excel file. We try not to go into detail here. So this, this is me doing my work at this point. It's a huge Excel file where I'm literally drawing a timeline and I'm kind of going key historical moments, key political moments, drivers, what are the triggers of these moments? 
big broad strokes. This is like if you're doing a painting, this is the underpainting where you're sitting with the giant brush going, mm, I'll do a bit of background here. Uh, this might turn into a tree at some point. There's a mountain over there, etc. Mm -hmm. Right, and that, that's a big Excel file. Then we attach a key writer. And our editor-in-chief, Eva, who's done an amazing job across all of our universes, is the top uh, owner of the universe content. I okay. give her that, the, this document, and I say, this is what I want this universe to be. Uh, then we go off and find a, a primary designer, um, who then is the, the designer of the rule set and the setting. In this case, it was Jay. And he took that and turned it into a 140-page core rulebook. Um, and that, and that's, that's a detailing rules, building play testing framework. So this is the first thing we do because the video games are based on the rules. Um, while he is doing that, I will then go off and start a relatively small scope video game in the unit, because before we want to get overly carried away, we want to get the basics. Um, and I will typically run point on development on that. And I'll work with Eva and a, and a writer to write kind of the basic storyline of that uh, story. And, and the, the, the game we've launched just now, Shinobi Rising, is that. The first video game in the Katana Ra universe to come out this year together with the core rule. So that's the process. And then from there, we build. Because by the time you've written like a 140-page core rule book, you've got a setting that's so broad that you could be writing stories in that for a decade. Um, which is exactly what we do. So then Eva and I will sit with that and we'll think, what kind of stories do we want to tell for the next 10 years? What kind of books? Do, um, what kind of uh, tabletop games do we want to do? What kind of video games do we want to do? And we start blocking in these big shapes in a 10-year plan. Uh, and then one at a time, we start executing that plan, which is exactly what we've been doing with Jordanheim the last five years and what we're going to be doing with Katana Ra the next five years. Um, and uh, so following on from this core rule book for Katana Ra, next up is the world book, which is a very neat 100% setting because the core rule book is kind of what we expect people to buy as a must have. Mm -hmm. We don't force any other material on a user. The core rule book needs to contain everything that you need. So basic rule settings, basic world setting, examples of play and a starting adventure. That's so when you go off and buy a core rule book of ours, you can be 100% certain as a new gamer that you have everything. However, of course, that does place quite a lot of pressure on the, on the game master to then go off and create a lot of detail. Uh, so we will then do supplements following that, which are all 140-page books as well, uh, like uh, a world-setting book, which is a really thorough detailing, in-depth detailing of the, of the world setting itself, uh, which then allows game masters to have less pressure in defining the overall world environment. And the third book following on is going to be something like a a grimoire of items, spells, monsters that you can simply pick up and dump into your world if you like you do the legwork. Um, and the Jordanheim setting is going through the same same process. So this is the this is the process that we have, and we repeat that process for every year. Okay. Um, why did you pick Jay? Uh, out of like what made him stand out? Because like for me, uh, because I know him like you, I know him personally. I I can think of all the reasons why I would pick him for a project like yeah. this. Why I think he's stellar for a project like this. I'm just curious yes. what what for you stood out for him as like okay. he's the person that you want to steer the ship on Katana Ra. Uh, well, in point of fact, I didn't pick him, our editor did. Um, and I didn't tell her that I knew Jay when I made the shortlist. So the, the way we're oh. is to, uh, in order to make sure that we are maintaining a bias for recruiting process, Mm -hmm. uh, it's always driven by competency first. So we throw out an ad, we throw it out as widely as we can. So we try to catch as wide a base uh, group as possible. 
Uh, among that was me contacting my tabletop networks. Um, so Jay saw the ad. Um, he was one of about 10 people that applied. Um, I had some requirements. Uh, those requirements were that we tend to hire senior people and establish track record um, of having uh, successfully pulled off product development they're doing. Uh, so in this case, I did ask for previous track record in having worked in cyberpunk related uh, material, um, at least one published uh, tabletop role-playing game credit and a degree in English, and also um, there was one requirement. Oh yeah, a genuine enthusiasm for Japan as a culture. You didn't, you didn't need to be Japanese, but you needed to have some basic understanding. Uh, so from that came about 10 people, all were interviewed, a three-person shortlist was made. Uh, all three of them had a lot of stuff in common. Um, so J J they, they were all professional role-playing game writers. They were with previous credits, uh, great in Japan, great cyberpunk history. Jay's particularly strong in cyberpunk. Yes, he is. Uh, uh, and uh, so he stood out pretty well in this in this process. Um, and then from that, I then, because technically Eva's in charge of our universe building, so I, I do like a culture fit, competency fit, uh, recruitment assessment, but the actual final decision is up to her. Mm -hmm. um, and I did tell Jay when I was interviewing him that I, I would not tell her that uh, that we. No, that's good. That's really good that you do that. Yeah. So she went on to then do the final selection, and Jay came out the top at the end of it. It, it was uh, it was not the it was the shortlist is always a pretty close call. Mm -hmm. um, but Eva didn't have any doubt whatsoever that Jay was the guy, and uh, it, the result. I mean, because he's an extremely professional dude, and, and it, we were up against this is a lot of work building from scratch. He did an immense amount of research work. Uh, the output was done in an incredible time. He actually delivered two months early. Yes, he did. Uh, uh, on the on the product. And this is not an easy thing to do because we're talking about 140 pages worth of material that needs to be written to be properly researched. It needs to be rules consistent and law consistent. And, and sure, there is assistance here because I'm involved in doing the framework and Eva is an excellent editor uh, who's a published author herself. But even with that, a lot is on the writer. And that's one of the reasons why we don't hire young people. It's the pressure is not acceptable to put on a personal experience. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a, like it was the the, the most uh, comfortable experience we have had with the designer so far. An incredible job, and the, the end result was so market you know fit already that the minimal the editing was minimal. Eva got done with the entire edit in less than a week and a half. Wow, uh, which is uh, which is great. Is that makes it much easier to 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 work. So Jay kind of stood out from the beginning and did an amazing job. And he's now going to continue to be our primary writer on the on the counter unit. Oh no, that's fantastic. Uh, so. For those who may not know, uh, Jay has done a lot of work in cyberpunk settings, and in particular, he's done a lot of work with another publisher, Artel uh, Games, uh, and doing cyberpunk setting stuff. Uh, but he, he, as you know, has a huge love for uh, Japan and the mythology and the history. And uh, during his process of this, uh, he and I shared a little bit of inspirations because I'm a, another... Uh, lover of feudal Japan and the mythology and the religion and the history. And, and so we would be like, what are you watching? And what have you read? And did you like this? And did you like that? And uh, what just kind of inspires you a little bit? And uh, so yeah. it was kind of cool to see him dive into it and do all that. All that. Yeah, he's done an excellent job. And, and again, I, I point out, this is the, the critical thing to understand about, about Katana Rai is that this is not every other cyberpunk setting. This is very, very different cyberpunk. Uh, rituals, magic, factions play an enormous role. And it's everywhere. It's infused in items. It's infused in culture. It's infused in events. It's uh, this is very, very different cyberpunk. It, it, it's you know, it's interesting to me because the cyberpunk RPG settings that I'm aware of uh, tend to 
focus on Asia usually or Japan or other parts of Asia. But like you said, they don't touch on that. They don't add uh, those sort of rituals or that sort of magic or that supernatural kind of aspect to it. So like yeah. uh, people might be familiar with, you know, Cyberpunk or uh, Shadowrun, for example. But like this doesn't exist in them. But I'm kind of surprised that it never made an appearance. And I, I'm glad that yeah. you're using that for Katana Ryan, that you're adding this extra flavor and these extra mechanics to kind of uh, to make it unique to you. I just I'm amazed that no one yeah. else has done it. Yeah, that, that is, I think, one of these areas where our process being so heavily infused with an understanding of the culture that we are inspired by makes a very big difference. Because if you look at feudal Japan at a very top level, um, you will only recognize the samurai, ninja, warrior culture side of it, which is what is popularized in a lot of that period in, in cultural uh, executions. Like yep. uh, the, mytholo the mythological side of Japanese uh, lore and history is never really meaningfully touched on, mm -mm. Uh, whereas it's extremely deep in a really, really unusual to every other culture sort of way, because it's not like Lord of the Rings magic. It's very, very uh, subtle and very dark magic that has a lot to do with demonic possession, rituals, uh, cultural structures, um, affinity to nature and the constructs of the culture and world around you. If you don't delve into the subject matter deeply enough, you don't actually find it. Uh, and this is an area where, where our process somewhat differs from, from many others, is that we go very deep into whatever culture is inspiring us. This is true for Jordanheim as well. It's, it is what you expect it to be from a Viking culture, but you find a lot of magic uh, it done very differently from how you expect fantasy magic to be done, because that's also us deep diving into Viking culture well beyond that top level veneer and finding lots of interesting stuff at the bottom. Yeah, uh, and and so this is this is why this is a, we have infused it in, into into Katana Ra in a way no other cyberpunk setting. I think with Japan, a lot of people uh, find it easy to gloss over the fact that for in feudal Japan and uh, mythologically speaking, a lot of the magic uh, and supernatural was very personal, and that uh, they weren't looking for a broad uh, stroke. They weren't like, "Hey, we need you to make everyone get along and be happy and kind to one another." It was more of a you know, here's a stream we love, and there's a spirit, the kami that lives there. Don't yeah. drown our kids. <laughs> it's more like what it is. And so you kind of have that more localized setting uh, for it and how it impacts the individual, uh, which I find really interesting because you have that stereotype of, historically speaking, Japan being more of a collective society, whereas what is best for the group, not so much what is best for you individually. So to kind of have that personal relationship with this yeah. is... Uh, interesting contradiction, but one I really like. Yeah, you know, it also makes for some much, much more personal and much darker human stories, which is nice mm -hmm. as well. Because this is uh, the, the we we did this in the uh, in the first video game as well, where it's a relatively simplistic premise to start off with. You play a, a shinobi assassin assigned with the task of solving a murder, and as you get through the story and get to the finish line, you realize nothing is what you expected, and the reality is vastly darker than you than the initial beginning would have indicated uh, and it's uh, it allows us to tell very surprising stories which is another one of these themes we run through we like to we don't we don't necessarily aim for political correctness we aim for authenticity and for and for stories that you're going to remember when you're done with them mm -hmm. and that requires accepting all of the failings and flaws of the characters uh, and and really complex definitions of what constitutes a hero 
Um, and it's uh, and that makes for more interesting storytelling. It also makes for a much more interesting experience. Uh, so it's uh, the, it, it, we did that with Jordanheim as well, but certainly with Katana rather than even broader palette. So with the actual gameplay, what are we looking at for say like dice mechanics? Is it a, a D6 system, a D20 system? Uh, are you do you need a lot of different dice that you're rolling for, or do you need dice at all? Are we looking yeah, at theater of the mind, or what are we thinking? Yeah, you do need dice. It, it is um, so. It's it's not. Uh, it is a it is a multi dice system, largely driven around ten uh, d dice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's not. Uh, but yeah, you do need quite a bit of dice. It's a normal sort of dice based system. Combat is relatively fast, um, and there's quite a lot to to consider in the rule set as a whole because character creation is relatively complex. Okay. Um, and character progression is also quite complex um, to a degree where I myself have not delved deeply into the into the rules beyond make the structurally was correct. Jay did a very in-depth deep dive into this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you do have your primary characteristics <clears throat> that constitute your, your character persona. All of those are dice-driven. Uh, combat is attack rolls, defense rolls driven. Um, damage is di- dice-driven. So you, as a normal tabletop gamer, you kind of see the constructs that you're expecting to see and it'll be familiar to you. Uh, which we hope will help with the whole pick-up and play mechanic. Now, does it utilize, like, for people think RPGs, they think of D&D, right? So does it utilize, like, the D&D setup of having different classes? You know, you have your warrior or barbarian or paladin or, or whatever. Uh, what is there any version of that for Katana Ra? Yeah, it's not a class-based system. It's a profession-based system. So you have oh. like uh, you have roles and professions because this is kind of more of a, a modern world, and there there are you can think of jobs if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but they're kind of your your pursuits in life. Um, so it is a class-based system, but it is largely driven by professions, which are heavily linked to factions. What what are some of the options that people can take? Uh, oh. Like for um, professions, for example, are we talking uh, like a a merchant? Yeah. Are we talking a yes. bodyguard, or or like what do we have? So you can do things like you could be a hacker, um, okay. you can be a shinobi assassin, um, you can be a corporate leader. Hmm. Um, so there, there's those those kind of profession styles. Right? They're not esoteric so much as they are kind of grounded in what your activity. No, but that's good because that gives you an idea of. You know, going by what your profession is, what you're hoping, what sort of characteristics for your character you hope to excel in uh, with your roles, in which maybe don't matter as much. I'm not saying necessarily you want to do like a stat dump or anything, but just to yeah. kind of help mold who your character is to kind of give it the flavor and allow you to inhabit them. Exactly, exactly, and then, and that can then give rise to everything else that goes around it in the the tools of the trade, the activities, the skills that you can have, and so on and so. Forth. Is there a, a desired uh, party size or a number of players that is kind of ideal? Um, no, uh, there isn't. I mean, uh, if I remember correctly, we had like a two to five person recommendation for this, which is like your normal sort of D&D sort of party size. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that these kind of storytelling games tend to work out better if you're a slightly smaller group. I think if you're playing with like 10 people is probably more of a hassle. Yeah, uh, because you're going to be sitting there trying to figure out how all of your or why even your your entire troop is there together. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you if you're in the two to five player size, you're kind of in that right bracket for a comfortable uh, tabletop. This is this is no different any other in that situation. So this uh, you know there's a stereotypical you're all in a, a tavern and you meet and then you decide to go on an adventure together. What would the version of that be for Katana Ra? Um, that's a good question. So one of the things we try to do is give so, and this is certainly going to be happening in the in the world setting because there's a limit. There's a limit to how much we can the core rule book, but in the world mm-hmm. world book, we're definitely doing this. 
like adventure inspirations. What is your story inspiration? Uh, there are quite a few classes in the in Katana Ra, which I think is not intended, but is kind of an automatic reflection of of how life becomes as it becomes advanced, modern, technological. Okay. Uh, many of the classes are, are like in, inherently loners. Um, yes. It would be unusual, for example, for a shinobi assassin to have like four buddies. <laughs> uh, but uh, there may be uh, uh, motivations for that, and it kind of pushes that onto the onto the game master trying to figure out what is. Uh, this is likely to be one of the challenges in, in setting up a team is to figure out why exactly those different factions are working with each other because many of the factions in Katana Ra are actually not uh, on each other's side. Mm -hmm. uh, it ha it's a, it's a domination-driven society. It's a dominance and winning-driven society. Um, however, that also then creates those little micro uh, moments in people's lives where uh, there's mutual gain to be had and therefore for a temporary period of time you are on the same page or walking the same path. Uh, so there isn't necessarily a predetermined set of starting areas that would be commonly obvious uh, for a party and that the, the game master will kind of have to craft that, that situation and the motivation. But these factions all have political motivations, they have overall goals, they have overall right, um, things they're trying to achieve. And inside of those factions and those goals and systems, you can then create a lot of overlapping areas where in a particular storyline, uh, a bunch of different factions may have a reason to work together. Yeah, they don't have to be your friend. They just don't have to be your enemy right now. Exactly. So I presume there's some sort of um, alignment uh, set up, uh, lawful good, neutral, chaotic neutral, or so forth. Uh, is there a change in terminology or a change in definition? Or, there isn't that. No, there isn't, really. There isn't an alignment set up. Uh, and the, the, this is the, the, there is no real clear definition between good and evil, okay. um, because it's uh, it, it is not that easy a line to draw in the Katana Ra universe, because the, the faction driven, motivation driven structure kind of doesn't. It tends to have these things be subjective. Um, a shinobi assassin may choose to kill for honorable mm -hmm. uh, or not kill for honorable. Um, that makes that character neither good nor evil. Uh, but depending on who you're talking to, they may be in comparison to someone else's motivation, good or evil. So there is no overall alignment of good or evil. However, the factions have got some pretty strict uh, framework that they operate in. So, for example, the traditionalists, they use technology as little as Okay. So you'll find traditionalist villages look like feudal Japanese, but the materials have all been enhanced to withstand, you know, to modern standards. Um, electricity or power is generated in a way that's modern. Uh, the the trappings of day-to-day -day life may look like traditional Japan, but are, in point of fact, augmented in many, many little um, Because otherwise, a sword-wielding character would have pretty much no chance against a person who has a laser in his finger. <laughs> Uh, so on the flip side of that, the the other factions, some go very deeply into cybernetic enhancement, uh, all the way to the point where they, they you know, significant enhancements may have taken over their human form. Um, others are very heavily driven by new Shintoism and and religion and 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 uh, and a focus towards spirituality, which stops you from doing certain things. So you would not ever find a fully cybernetically augmented tradition mm -hmm. because at that point they're not a tradition. So there, there's a, there, there are some hard lines that define these factions, um, and uh, like the the the, the corporation and wealth-driven factions are heavily driven by greed, expansion, and winning uh, in commerce and in trade. So there, there's a, 
there there are some hard lines between the factions, but they, it's not an alignment. Okay. No, that sounds fascinating, though. Yeah, we think this will add a lot of complexity to the gameplay. It also makes a lot of motivations for the, for the different players who are inhabiting these different classes, these different or these characters and different roles, uh, playing out their motivations correctly. Because you can imagine that a a party that has a heavily augmented cybernetic character with a very deeply focused traditionalist is going to make for some interesting conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also going to make for some interesting decision-making when it comes to how you approach a problem. Because the traditionalist warrior will inherently be, will lean towards much less combat, in-your-face combat choices because they will always be working from a disadvantage compared to highly modernized uh, assailant. Mm -hmm. Whereas a very heavily augmented cybernetic character who, who is literally Iron Man will will shoot first and ask questions later, which will make for very interesting conflicts in a party when they're trying to solve. Yeah, I could see that it would be very nuanced. Yeah, yeah, we'll 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 see that the playtesting went very interestingly. We'll see how when people start. Uh, so the, this is coming to stores in June. So okay. once people start actually uh, playing the setting, the setting properly, we'll see how people react to it. Uh, no, those who are pre-ordered will get it uh, towards the end of May, but everyone else is going to get it in stores somewhere to mid to end June. So when you say in stores June 2023, what do you mean by that? Like, can I go to my local gaming store and they'll have it? Or is it a case of I buy it online? Or, or how does how does um, one get it? We, 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 we do almost all of our sales through the normal retail challenge channels. So okay. we, we don't sell direct to consumer normally. You can go to the Katana Ra website and, and order the hard copy from us. Um, and pre-order it now, but order it, you know, when it's out there. Uh, that's that's a relatively small amount of our, our sales. Uh, we, we go to market in the traditional way. We have in Europe, in the UK, and in uh, the United or in North America, we have like large distributors. They buy the product from us in bulk, and then it goes out into retail stores and chains. Um, so there's a very good likelihood that uh, your local store has it. Um, if they don't have it, you can ask for it. And if they are a local store that normally buys from a regional distributor, there's a very good chance that Katana Ra is there to order now. And is this something that one would find in, say, like a, a larger chain of bookstore, like a Barnes & Noble, or like, I don't know, uh, a Target or uh, some sort of big box store? Or uh, uh, are yeah, we looking more would, um, specialized? Um, you, you would probably aim at more game stores where, where RPGs are generally the, the primary uh, selling product. Mm -hmm. uh, Target you will definitely not have it in Target. Um, yeah. Walmart does sell our products on the online store, but not in. Oh, interesting. Um, so you can buy Jordanheim, for example, by going to Walmart, Walmart's e-commerce store and ordering it there. You can order the actual hard copy. Um, but all major RPG and game store retail chains will definitely have the product. Uh, any smaller ones who regularly buy new products from distributors will have the product also. And somebody who has not already ordered it into their inventory can certainly do so quite easily from that distributor because our distributor supplies most other distributors. So basically, whether you're in the UK, somewhere in Europe or North America, you should be able to get it in June 2023 as long as the game store yeah. has uh, picked it up. And if not, you just ask them to get it. Indeed. Uh, that is the easiest way to do it. Um, otherwise, if for some reason it is impossible for you to get to a store that has it or can't see anybody in your area who has the ability to get it, then you can order it directly off our website. We ship anywhere in the world. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the, those are print-on-demand shipping that we do as the orders come in. The turnaround is really fast. Um, 
uh, it, it's usually about a week um, from the point where you order one, one to two weeks for you to get it uh, delivered to your door. And in addition to the physical format, is it available digitally? It is. It is available in PDF format only from our website. Okay. And as of right now, what are you looking at as um, MSRP pricing for it? Forty nine ninety nine. Okay. It's, U.S. dollars is forty nine ninety nine on all of our products um, because we only we we did uh, we did ship a cheaper product like a module mm-hmm. um, uh, for Jornheim, a starting adventure module. Um, I don't think we'll be doing that in the future because at the end of the day, most of our production pipelines are quite premium; they're quite expensive. Yep, uh, they tend to lean better towards the larger products. I mean, the smaller product came out very well, but I don't think that it's necessarily what we do and going forward i am probably going to wind up doing something closer to like the dnd beyond model where as we start fleshing out i mean we're going to have so we've got one book out now two books actually counting the module we're going to have three more by the end of this year and then we're going to be shipping at least one product per universe every year starting next year so by the end of next year we're going to have four eight ten products um across our lines that's a lot uh which is a lot and at that point i think we're better off doing those products as larger hard copy premium products and doing the add-ons or complementary products if you will either as pdf only or as free products inside of a uh, online support uh, community or a support model similar to Demion. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably do that going forward. So don't expect any of the smaller products like the the Curse of the Urlog is a Jordanheim module, um, which is roughly uh, 45 pages, mm-hmm. uh, which is available and is coming to stores this month. But it's uh, not something that we're expecting to do in the future. So we'll stick to the bigger, bigger um, setting and core rule books and maybe bigger adventure chains where we're doing like a, a very meaty adventure or campaign setting across 140 pages. And the smaller stuff will come come online for you to, to you to, for you to consume across our website. So in addition to the tabletop role playing games, you also do video games as well, PC games for Katana Ra. What is that going to look like for 2023 and 2024? For 2023, our first game is out. It came out last Tuesday. Uh, Shinobi's Rising is now available uh, for PC on Steam uh, in the Western world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is going to roll out in Japan and Korea in June and July uh, on local uh, distributors, um, fully localized to those languages. Uh, with, with local partners that we have, and we hope to also be ticking China as a box for this year. That conversation oh, wow. is going. Uh, so we're, we're not sure we've got that. That isn't in the bag yet. It's in the early discussion stages, whereas Japan and Korea, for sure, it's, it's shipping next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, console versions for Xbox and PlayStation will come out as well this year, towards the tail end of the year. Um, and then Switch and mobile is coming as well later on. Uh, so you'll be able to consume that game, all of our video games across multiple platforms, no matter where you prefer the game. Uh, that will be that for 2023. In 2024, we have our first like proper. The, the Shinobi Rising is kind of a short form gaming experience. You play you play a Shinobi assassin task with a murder mystery. It's a slow paced, stealth driven. Uh, short-form gaming experience, four to eight hours of gameplay with some repet- repetition possible in replayability, and we'll be adding more content to this game over time. But it's designed to be a short-form introduction that introduces you to a core character, the gameplay, and also this uh, introducing a, a, a mechanic that is that is interesting for, for the world in this 
smaller game. In 2024, we're going to take that character, Jin, and we're going to take him and the gamer through a much more complex, larger gaming, which is going to be, uh, which is currently looking to either a third person or a first person uh, story driven shooter mm-hmm. set inside the Katanara world. That's a much more complex spiel that is still going through very early prototyping. Expect that towards the tail end of it. Cool. And there's one kind of subject matter we didn't really talk about yet. Uh, and in, I know it's a uh, change in direction for you artistically speaking, and that is artificial intelligence created art. And I, before we start talking about it, I just, I, I want to say that I realize how controversial this topic is right now yeah. for a lot of people. But I know that you've had a history with Workscapes of doing, I guess, what we have to call traditional art, and you're moving away from that. Uh, why is that? Yes, very big step indeed. So we, since the very beginning, one of the things that we have been very well known for is the fact that we have sensational. Uh, and uh, from years ago in the Jordanheim era, we've uh, from the yeah from you know, right from the Jordanheim setting onwards, we did a lot of in-house artwork with great freelance artists. We spent a lot of money on artwork. It's an interesting conundrum of of, of situations that occur. I was never dissatisfied with that concept. I felt that the the money we're investing in artists and in the artwork we do uh, is well worth the result that we create. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we are a commercial business, and that comes with some repercussions. If we invest money into something, to make that money back. And because gaming is a ridiculously competitive, um, tabletop gaming, video gaming, we're in two verticals that are incredibly competitive. And in order to, to succeed, our products need to be really high quality. Um, and one of the things you can always tell when you pick up a product of ours is that it's very, very high. Uh, this comes at a price, a production cost price. That is why our books are $49.99. Now, our customer base, of course, knows what they're getting for that price. They are perfectly happy paying that price. But it does mean that we're pricing ourselves out of a lot of people who don't have $49.99 to spend on the product. Especially if you consider that your 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 primary gaming pathway may be D&D, it might be Warhammer, Cthulhu, it might be Chaosium products in general, or, or any Pathfinder, any one of the bigger ones, where you will spend the majority of your investment. And you may dive off a few times a year to independent pathways created by people like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take a look at the, the three core rule books that, that make up a... Uh, um, uh, our primary books in a setting. So you'd have the core rule book that's a must-buy, the world setting and the grimoires, which are all optional buys, $49.99 each. You're looking at coughing up somewhere in the ballpark of $150 per setting. Um, and we have three settings, and that's now. It's a pretty big investment. Mm-hmm. So one question I started to ask myself a couple of years ago is, because always look at it from the consumer's point of view, how do we competitively deliver the high kind of quality that we, that we expect to have in our products? while at the same time giving a consumer a good product at a good price and being price competitive in the um, in the market as well. Uh, and we are price-wise the very definition. It actually costs more money to buy one of our core rule books than it does to go off and buy the Dungeons and Dragons. So that's, that, that's quite a steep thing to put down. And, and this is because we have a business model in the company. We know how many units we really send, tend to sell in the printing run. Therefore, we have margins we need to hit. That's where the price comes. A huge chunk of this price is artwork. Um, and even with that being the case, we still don't have, uh, didn't have as much artwork as I would like to have. We're pretty good. We have you know, a, a serious piece of artwork at least every, which is pretty good. For a 140-page book, that's a pretty result. Um, but still, it's not... Every page is what I would like. And, and the budget just didn't fit. If we did that, the books would be 69 
so the, we, it starts getting unviable after a while. So I started looking for alternatives a couple of years ago, and it started with us getting a very early access to MidJourney, the mm-hmm. AI tool. Um, it was incredibly rudimentary at the time. And while I was playing around with it, I could see the potential, but I didn't realize it was going to go so the, I remember two years ago when I was playing around with early versions of MidJourney, I was like, great, this is going to revolutionize our world in about 10 years. <laughs> uh, but then one year later, it got so much better. Um, by the time we hit about September of last year, the uh, I mean, my ability to use MidJourney to create artwork started to become at the same level as the top-notch artists that we have. So I do think AI, and we just not, not just for us, but in general, I think AI is going to sensationalize game development in all of its facets, sound, voiceovers, art. Um, but I also think it's going to wind up creating more jobs than it, than it eventually takes. We are an example of a company where AI has actually replaced actual people and they did it by outperforming. And it's an interesting statement, that one, because AI right now is pretty dumb. It's not very smart AI, but our artists were, at, were like top tier artists. And even the current state of AI art has actually come to the point where it's on par with us. So in in this, uh, we, we this went in stages. So Curse of the Urlog, the first book that came out after Jordanheim, it's a half-half between uh, uh, real-world artists and AI art. Katana Ra is also a half-half um, between our actual artists and AI art. And we will eventually start transitioning to full AI art over time. Um, there's significant benefits from a cost efficiency point of view, production speed point of view, and production cost point of view, which then feeds back into the consumer because our books, by the time we get to this time next year, the $49.99 book is going to be $39.99. But it's going to be $39.99 at a much higher production because you'll see this when you buy the Katana Rakol rule book. There's art on every single page. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because of the the ability to do it through AI art. Well, we have quite a lot of processes that upscale this AI art that we create into a print quality product. Mm-hmm. And I would I would challenge anyone to really tell the difference because I've gotten quite good at using Midjourney. So it's not your it's not your everyday Midjourney artwork. It's proper production quality, top tier work, and it looks like an artist. Um, and we actually did a talk on this in a, in a video game uh, pa- panel or a video game uh, event in January. And I challenged the crowd to pick out the difference between the AI art and the artist art. And for the most part, everybody failed. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum because as a company, you kind of need to think about profitability and long-term competitiveness. The tabletop gaming is ridiculously competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, quality is how we compete. We are very uncompromising on quality. But I don't think this is necessarily all bad because if you take a look at a, uh, the, the, what is the, the process of us creating a tabletop game, we've got management, we have production, we have artists, we have writers, we have editors, we have the, the introduction of AI art caused the artists to lose. But every other component of this concept won. And in a corporate innovation process for there to be only one loser, and every other component a winner is about as good as it gets. Um, and it was a really big value add as well, because if you look at uh, what we did with the money, because we saved about 40% on the production of, of a tabletop title by doing oh, wow. uh, our artists were a huge chunk of the, of, the, of the cost because we paid extremely well. What did we do with this 40%? Uh, about 10% went straight into uh, a, the, the, the consumer, got a reduced price as a result of that. 10% went to the company in an increased profit margin. The rest, we bundled into all of the other people involved in the process and eased their pace. 
uh, to the point where a writer, for example, working for us as a freelance tabletop writer, I'm pretty comfortable saying you probably get the largest paycheck you can possibly get in freelance writing in the gaming in the, in the world because we pay 10 cents per word for writing, which, well, it's 10 pence, UK pence, <laughs> which is 12 cents, US dollar cents. If okay. you look at the fact that a typical freelance writing gig in the gaming, it pays two to four cents a word. The only people who are even close are Wizards of the Coast, which I know pay eight cents per We pay 12 cents per It is way above the market standard. Uh, and that is made possible because of the savings we had through uh, introducing AI art into the pipeline. So it is a pity that the artists are going to eventually wind up not being part of our world because from having started out being a huge part of our world. This is a, you know, affected the video game side of the business as well. But ultimately, the consumer is going to win from this um, and everyone in the pipeline is going to and hopefully the existing plethora of AI tools is going to enable artists to actually become producers of games and users of content in ways they were not able to. Because previously they only, the, the AI revolution is not just happening in art, it's happening in everything else. So in video games, for example, I can definitely see a situation where people who used to be artists inside game development pipelines are going to start becoming game developers. Mm -hmm. Because they are not going to need to need the writers, the game developers, and the and the sound designers and everything anymore either, because they've got AI tools to help them. So they will just instead of being a creator in one single vertical of the pipeline, they will wind up becoming creators of the entire product uh, in ways they couldn't before. So over a long enough timeline, everyone is going to win on this. But I do think that everybody kind of needs to really uh, start looking at how will this impact your world if you're a professional in the creative industry today. You have to look at how this is going to impact your world and how is it going to benefit you and where are you going to lose from it? Because everybody's going to lose something from this, but the winning is pretty big. You just need to gear up for the win and get ready for it. So I know right now AAR is incredibly controversial in particular because some people claim that it sources art or exists in art without con uh, consent and it does so in ways that might violate copyright or trademark laws and yeah. that anyone who's using it that you might not be able to copyright or trademark stuff that has it in it and i'm not a lawyer i don't know the legal aspects of it i know these are just i know there's a lot of lawsuits about this and there's a, uh, a lot of claims yeah. we made and that sort of stuff and it'll be a while i think personally before we see it shake out uh, that's just my unprofessional opinion please don't anyone hold me to it um but with this what sort of feedback are you getting um uh, from people when they find out or that there's AI art in your games and it's quite mixed. Okay. It's quite mixed. And, and a lot of it, I think is based on a lot of confusion. So I can tell you the people who love the, the result are largely consumers, distributors, publishers, uh, the people who are in the production chain, mm -hmm. uh, they think the product quality is amazing. Um, because uh, that, which is a good thing. Uh, consumers, for the most part, as, as far as we can tell, we have never seen, uh, except for a few straggling exceptions, a consumer be very hard-lined about it. I don't think that as a consumer, it makes sense to be hard-lined about it, because although we were kind of early on this bandwagon, I can tell you with certainty that there are top-tier indie, indie uh, independent tabletop game publishers who are moving to uh, AI art. Uh, there are major publishers that are moving to AIR. Tor Books has actually launched uh, the uh, the first book, retail book fiction cover built in AIR. 
Uh, and they, they also got a lot of uh, controversy around that. This is happening for certain. Uh, so I think as a consumer, if let's say you are you're an active gamer who buys a lot of products today, if, if you were to go, I am not going to buy a product that has AI art in it, give it another three to four years, that will probably translate to you not being able to buy any products at all. Um, so that's probably not going to be overly useful. It's, but as with any greater in a great innovation, industry kind of needs to find the balancing act between the creators, the commercial profit, and, and what is the definition of right versus wrong. In and it's going to be a complex spiel on this one because it's not art is really the, the least of the controversy. Uh, it's the one that gets talked about a lot. Mm. So we do find, and I tend to engage in this quite proactively because I've been at this for a while. I've been pretty vocal about it for a while. We never hit this even for a second. We, we were exposed even the experimental state when we were trialing this out over a year and a half ago, even that is publicly. We announced it in our usual transparent way, way that um, and artists would regularly come to me and go, oh, you're ruining the industry because this is, is robbing me of work. And I would very slowly over a discussion show the problem being one, and this is an important thing when you are an artist, is that there's a lot of artists who are trying to make it in the industry without understanding what the quality bar in the industry is. Because in video gaming and in tabletop gaming, the, the professional artists are really, really good. They're really good. And I will occasionally have somebody go, you are ruining my commercial prospects. And I would go, show me your portfolio. And they would send me a link to the portfolio. I'll take a look at it. I've been hiring artists since I was in my 20s. So I know what good looks like. Uh, and I show them my mid journey portfolio. And I go and show them a person who has a successful career in, in the game industry portfolio. And I go, go take a look at this and tell me if I'm the thing that killed your progress in your, in your, in. because a lot of these, uh, the, the people that we're getting, uh, that I get complaints from are people who haven't properly understood where they are in this competitive landscape. And the thing that outcompeted them was not AI. It was other better artists. And, and I do think the bar is starting to go up to like a, level. Uh, and if you take a look at, you know, we pay 300 pounds a day. Mm -hmm. for freelance roles, which is a pretty good paycheck for, for the gaming industry again. Uh, and it's, uh, if you look at what you get for that in the form of a professional concept artist in video games, in tabletop games, the standard is so high. It's uh, even if you take AI art completely out of the equation, the standard is so high that competing effectively for a career as a professional artist in games, really small amount of people that are. Um, the real, the real career issue is going to be books. When publishers who publish fiction, uh, and and this is another thing people don't know, by the way, books make an insane amount of money. the idea that that printed books is a concept that is lost or is dying is massively overrated. <laughs> but in the entertainment industry, the number one uh, form of entertainment is games. The number two form of entertainment is books and then comes movies and music. books outperform movies in total revenue per uh, and um, artists have for a very very long time built stable careers by being people who did who did covers for books that has been going south for years now because publishers let you take a pub, you know publisher like penguin who rolls out hundreds of books a year if they're going to go off and pay somebody five to ten thousand dollars per cover every single time they did that it would cost a fortune so they've been moving to using uh, photos or, or, or royalty-free uh, art in covers for a long time. So extending that to AI art is a natural sort of progression. That industry doing that is going to destroy artists. That is inevitable at this point. 
and therefore artists will need who currently live off that pipeline of of, uh, of revenue there's a lot of artists uh, need to take this incredibly serious because over the next five years i can pretty much guarantee that every major publisher who publishes fiction or a printed book is going to move to ai art because there's no reason why they would and, and then the legality of the issue is a really complex one i find that most of the debates are because it's there's a lot of confusion in this early stage so it's it's based off the wrong things uh, because the the most of the ai art is based on stable diffusion uh, stable diffusion as a technology is you start with a piece of artwork which is or a photo or whatever you dissect this into a tiny amount of, of, of smaller pieces, broken up pieces, and you describe all of those pieces as metadata. Uh, they could be parts of a human being, parts of a thing, so that all that goes into a database. Then when somebody comes up and writes a prompt to describe something, that database goes looking for what that things that are similar to this prompt, and then tries to reconstruct a piece of artwork based on those uh, taken apart little so it is not a direct stealing. I mean, theoretically, you could, if you got the prompt absolutely perfect, you could reconstruct pixel by pixel a art that the system learned from. The chances of that happening are ridiculously tiny, immeasurable. So the, what the AI is doing is creating an original piece of artwork, but it's creating it from having learned by looking at other people's artwork similar to how if you and i as an artist were to go off and want to learn how to do great oil painting lighting we might go off and study caravaggio who is a master of that particular thing and then through trying to emulate him become good ourselves so we would begin by emulation and copying and would transition to to learning and originality after that is a pathway that could take an artist decades to this is what the AI is doing, but it is doing it in days, weeks, and months in its learning. So it is doing exactly the same learning by emulating other people's artwork, but doing it very, very fast. And then able to reproduce an original piece based on that deconstruction. So I legally, I think it's a problematic situation. I do think there's a legal um, discussion to be had. Whether the Supreme Courts of the world go for it remains to be. Uh, because the legal question is, if you are, as a machine, learning en masse from somebody else's work, do you owe them something for that work, for that process, for that learning um, uh, access? It could be so that the answer to that is yes, but saying yes to that winds up opening up an incredible can of worms. Because then if I go to the New York Times and I read somebody writing an original journalism research piece on a political situation and I learn from that and go off and write a book about that political situation as part of my exercise, do I owe this per the person who wrote the New York Times article money? Uh, it opens up an incredible amount of problems to actually process meaningful. Uh, it, it might require redefining what the concept of a royalty is. So I think this is a really complicated can of worms that could be a 10-15 year legal battle to even define. So an example of a legal battle that's happening now, and this is where the problems occur for artists, is I think there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of activity that's happening too fast without people thinking about it. So for example, Stable Diffusion has been sued. The, the team of Mid Journey has actually been sued as well. A Stable Diffusion learned originally by taking a billion pieces of artwork that was freely available online to build the learning that, that is Stable Diffusion today. There's a lawsuit in place right now, a class action lawsuit in the United States, trying to sue Stable Diffusion for a billion dollars. There are four artists signed up to it. Uh, this is an example of what not to do. 
because there is no way for the artist to win it. First of all, those four artists are going to have to prove that their work is in the Stable Deacon Learning Library and has actually resulted in artwork being generated somewhere that has been commercialized. A nearly impossible thing to do. But even if they win, so there's a billion pieces of artwork in the Stable Diffusion Library, you're suing a company for a billion dollars worth of damages. That means that the, the value per artwork is one dollar. That is probably not the value proposition we want to put on this. Because if an artist wants to make the argument, my art being used in an AI has to be valued, you probably don't want that value to be one dollar. So even if this lawsuit wins, it then has a completely different problem because then you've gone and made a, a legal definition saying that in the, the value of a single item being used is $1, uh, which is a really odd value proposition to put. So I think right now, the argument is happening in too much of a hurry with too much uh, speed towards trying to draw a conclusion rather than understanding that this is very it's really, really in the early stages. And there's a lot of evolution that needs to be done. And I imagine that we're going to be having this discussion for really a good couple. Well, it seems to me that you kind of have these sort of emotions and responses and uh, thoughts whenever you have any sort of disruptor happening, whether it's computers or the internet or you know the phone or the fact that we have clocks in the house instead of just relying on when the sun goes down or whatever. We've uh, done that, this many times. We've done this yeah. many times. This this happened when when uh, when silent movies started adding sound. Yeah, when you have the talkies. The entire industry. It went from when we went from black and white to color. Mm -hmm. The invention of TV did this to radio. Um, and at the end of the day, at the internet, we actually had this exact problem in the early days of the internet when people were linking to pages or copying people's pages. Yep. There was a movement that got nowhere, which was exactly this. The idea that the original creator needed to be paid a royalty every single time you linked to their work or copied or were inspired by their work. There were actually writers trying to do this and there were journalists trying to do this. It did not work because had it worked, the Internet would never have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's the where, where the overall value lies. There's always going to be, uh, you know, sometimes incredible disruption to the point where it wipes out entire um industries or or talent pools when this happens i mean technically agriculture is going to get wiped out completely as an industry going forward eventually it's been heavily subsidized for a long time mm -hmm. uh, because food production is one of these things that's going through an incredible technical innovation so that that, that is going to wipe out an entire industry of people we, we've seen this many many so this is just the the current uh, evolution of this at this in it's i it's never painless uh but i think society tends to kind of find a way to move forward through it to find a way to exist with it and yeah. people may not always be completely happy about it but they are able to exist absolutely and not only exist this is a thriving moment because this is i mean i've done uh, i did one talk on this i mean lots of people are talking about this in the video game industry the next thing that comes after 2d ai art is 3d ai art. Mm -hmm. When 3D AI art shows up, the video gaming is going to get ravaged because yeah. that, that is a huge amount of asset development work is how the video game industry happens. Uh, it's going to destroy entire segments. This is a big topic, but I tend to find that when I listen to other speakers, I mean, I always portray this optimistically when I speak about it, but I don't sugarcoat the details because we've had a lot of time with this. We've seen what the, what the commercial rea realities to us as a company are from this. This is a huge disruptor. This is going to, this is going to wipe out careers permanently. And I never sugarcoat this because I think it's important to understand that this is actually a big deal. 
Yeah, this is a really seminal moment for the creative industry. This is a very, very deal, and it is not going to be painless. Uh, and you do need to take it seriously. You can't be uh, you can't be blasé about this and assume that this is not going to come to you. And when I did the talk in January, I'm about to do a much more in-depth talk about this in Brighton uh, at Develop Brighton in July. Uh, it's uh, the, we can show the commercials. And I showed a, a, a small hint of it in January. I'll do a much more in-depth version. The amount of savings and value that comes, and this is really important for the game industry, because when you can pull down cost, what you're doing is being more competitive in industry. It, survive, it helps the company survive better. It allows you to be sustainable as a company, which preserves jobs in your company, it preserves your, the company's future. It's a huge big deal. And this is true for large companies, because if you think of a company like Ubisoft, which has... 10,000 employees, an enormous chunk of them are artists. That's a gargantuan cost that they bear. Uh, they only develop AAA games, which have 50 to $100 million budgets. If you can shave off 20, 30% of that cost through introduction of AI in technology, tools, processes, art, there's no way that they're going to look at that and go, oh, we're not going to do that. Yeah, because of course they are. Yeah, and, and the, the game industry is going to be incredibly impacted by this. So I, I do think it's important that the creatives in the industry, that even includes people such as myself who are the developers. This is not going to be something the technical side is not going to get hit by. Chat GPT is a great mid-level coder. It's absolutely going to hit the developers too. Yes, so is. everyone needs to be aware of it. No, you're right. I know some companies are already laying off um, entry-level developers uh, encoders and using AI to do some rudimentary coding. Yep. And I've seen some upcoming tools that are not out widely available yet. There, there is a, a, an AI tool that can take a prompt and can create a VR space, 3D wow. assets and everything. It's very, very rudimentary. Of course, it's terrible. But mm -hmm. you can stick on a, a VR headset and go walking around in the room that you described. Uh, there are already AI tools that can create 3D assets relatively competent. Uh, and fully textured, game-ready assets. Uh, so this is this is not a small thing. And and uh, the currently, I think one of the issues is that the AI art discussion has become too dominant because it's it's all over everywhere where there is the AI conversation, which has confused people into believing that this is purely an art-related issue. And it's not even remotely that. There are over a thousand AI tools right now across all kinds of disciplines. It's not even a little bit, and I, I would consider art to be the, the least of the, the problems when it comes to the current, because to be honest, commercial art as part of a commercial pipeline has always been an extremely problematic career choice. There has never in the history of the world been a moment when an artist could get up in the morning and go, great, I feel super secure about my future. <laughs> but at the end of the day, AI is not the thing that killed art. It's always been a really difficult commercial part of a, of a pipeline. Um, but the other parts that are being impacted by AI have, uh, have been very clear, powerful, dependable career choices for lifetime. Uh, and those are going to get threatened pretty heavily. Uh, and this, it's going to be an enormous, enormous uh, inflection point. Uh, mankind as a, as a, even at this very rudimentary level, and I keep stressing this fact when I talk to people as well, AI is pretty bad right now. Mm -hmm. It's not even AI because AI is not creating it. It's not understanding it. It's learning from a pool of knowledge that we've had and it's interpreting and building on it, but it's not creating anything new. This is dumb AI. And dumb AI is already having an incredible impact. 
Right. So you can imagine when real AI shows up, what uh, what an astounding activity that's going to be in the world. So it's it's I think it's something that everybody should be positively energized by, um, but afraid of in like the sensible. Yep. You should not be ignoring this. You should be looking at it. It's going to impact everyone. So you should be looking at it. And I also think it's important that people understand who it's going to impact. Because if you look at the sci-fi world, we've been talking about machines taking over humans for a long time. Uh, but in, in that in that ridiculously condescending way mankind always does it, we assume that that meant the little people. Right. But that's not what's happening because the, the, the bakers, the, the, the people who take out the garbage, the, the cleaners, the, the, the cooks, those people are doing valuable things in society. They're not being impacted by this at all. This is impacting white collar work. Uh, and don't, well, the, the white collar workers are the endangered species of the AI revolution, not the blue collar workers. The blue collar workers have always been doing things that were enormously valuable to society. They've just been undervalued. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting twist on, because um, usually science fiction for the most part gets this stuff right. It does get it right. The, the future predictions have been mostly fairly spot on or, you know, across the, the science fiction genre. This is one of these areas where we've just been way wrong. The predictions about AI are, are are completely in a different direction. This is going to impact the 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 the, the top end of the of the working ladder. That includes management, because if you take out 30, 40 percent of your developers, your artists, your musicians, your writers in a creative process, why do you need the project managers mm -hmm. or the managers? So they, this is going to impact management as well, and this is what I tend to hammer in continuously when we're talking about this in the gaming. It's not about artists; it's on every layer. Because if you, again, if you have a huge several hundred person company and you've got 20 project managers, 15 people in middle management, eight people in senior management, that's because you have a several thousand person company. If that several thousand person company becomes a several hundred person company, you don't need all these guys either. No, you're right. Uh, I think it's what whatever way it uh, shakes out, it's definitely going to be transformative. Uh, but I also make sure to thank my... Um... <laughs> Amazon voice assistant or Apple voice assistant every time they answer a question for me and to let them know that I appreciate them just in case, just in case. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Terminator is real. My ex-partner used to do this as well. And I, the first time I saw it, I was like, did you just thank Alexa? And like, and like, yeah, it was like, it's just, uh, it's just what you do. <laughs> it, like, I can't say that name because there's a device right next to me, which will turn on and <laughs> it'll get picked up for the recording. But I tell you all the time, Thank you for turning the lights on for me or it's turning them on. It's a very good practice to have. So we've covered a lot of stuff in this episode. And for people who want to keep up to date with all the things that you're doing and all the stuff happening at Works Games, what are the best ways for them to do that? Um, for passively absorbing things, our websites are always up to date and are kept uh, are very informative landing pages and starting points for everything. Uh, so the Works Games site is a good place to start. All of our universes have got their own dedicated universe sites. So Jordanheim and Katana Ra both have dedicated universe sites. Uh, they will point you to, to the tabletop games and the video games um, and also where you can acquire them. So that's a great place to get started. Um, and if you then want a slightly more personalized experience where you're talking directly to us, social media and Discord are the ways to do that. Um, I monitor all of those myself. So the person who's going to be talking back to you. Cool. And which social media platforms do you use? Um, we are present on all of them. I would say TikTok is our least used, um, mostly because we don't particularly understand it very well. Is that because uh, you just don't want to do dancing videos? That too. Um, <laughs> not that I'm against dancing. I, I, I enjoy a good dance-off, but it's, uh, the, the, uh, the, the content, it's unclear to me what kind of content gamers on TikTok want to consume. 
Um, and, you know, the content we're putting out on TikTok is viewed a few hundred times, which as far as I can tell is not bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, there's no, like, input. Nobody's talking back. Uh, Instagram is where people who love our artwork hang out. Um, we get quite a lot of interactions on that. People who want to talk to us directly should do it on Twitter because our direct messages are open. Uh, and you can just, uh, if, you want, if you need direct support or you need to talk to us directly, Twitter is good. If you want to have actual conversations with us about anything, then Discord is the Cool. So you got TikTok, you got Instagram, or I think the kids call it the Gram, or I could just be old and have it wrong. Uh, Discord and Twitter, and those are each unique in what you can expect from them. And um better suited for certain things uh over others yeah i mean we have a facebook uh, page as well but um very rarely do we get anyone messaging us on that but we do maintain a facebook page as well um i think those uh, the 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 content you get from us is slightly different based on which platform you're whichever one you know what is the one that you mm -hmm. uh, but if you want to have any lengthy discussions and debates i find that social media is not the right place to do it and that's what discord is for. no absolutely cool well, I want to thank you for taking this time to be with us here today. And I know you are very busy, so it is most appreciated that you did. And I've enjoyed having you. Likewise. Good as always. It's been, this has been quite a lengthy conversation, which is good. I hope uh, everyone has uh, enjoyed this episode. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to tune in to this episode of Wargaming Recon. Remind you all that we are on all the things, all the socials. So when you are playing Katana Ra and your character is looking up at that skyscraper in the sky and you see the flashing lights advertising coca-cola or whatever beverage you'll see right next to it in tiny 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 print because we can't afford big print a little ad for we're giving recon and how to stitch with us so thank you everyone for taking the time of course to be here with us and as always you know the drill no matter how busy you are no matter what's going on in your life you know you gotta you need to you have to keep on gaming Indeed. Thank you all. Are you always on the go? Why not take Wargaming Recon with you? If you use an app like Pocket Casts, you can listen to your favorite episodes of Wargaming Recon on your mobile device. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. Many thanks to Andrew and Court for inspiring the show's name. Wargaming Recon is dedicated to the memory of longtime listener Andrew. I ask all listeners to join me in a moment of silence in memory of Andrew. Wargaming Recon is sponsored by the Historical Gaming Club of Uxbridge. They meet the first Wednesday of each month at Great Stories in Wittensville, Massachusetts. Dice drop at 7 p.m. on games spanning World War II to the Wild West and beyond. Guest demos are encouraged. All are welcome. Find them on Facebook at Historical Game Club of Uxbridge. Wargaming Recon is proudly sponsored by the Maine Historical Wargamers Association. They put on the Huzzah Convention. Huzzah is happening at the Doubletree in Portland, Maine from May 19th to the 21st, 2023. Come play war games featuring epic historical battles, have fun at a sci-fi and fantasy game, or dig into some board games at Huzzah. Visit mhwa.info for more information.